Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Well, glad you're here. Uh, we had a pretty big snowstorm last night, but so glad that you all made it here uh, safely and uh, chose to be here at church. What a blessing it is to worship together. Uh, I almost, I turned the corner in the hallway and almost ran into someone and knocked the coffee out of their hand. They're like, oh man, we almost had a collision. I'm like, better in here than out there this morning. So here we are safely, so glad we are. The ushers are coming forward. If you don't have a Bible with you, just raise your hand and they'll get a copy of God's word in your hands. Um, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can keep that as, as yours. Uh, but I don't honestly know if we're gonna need a Bible this morning because have you looked at the notes yet? Have you seen what verse we're looking at? John 3.16. No, I'm just kidding. Of course you need a Bible. Come on, this is harvest. Get your Bible, get it open to John 3 because we want God's word to speak, not, not mine, not, not our own. Uh, but John 3.16, I mean, how many of us know it from memory? Come on, I know it's early in the morning, but if you know it, raise your hand by heart. Okay, most of us, right? So help me out. Let's go back to like Awana days, sword drill days, and let's uh, recite our memory verse together. So John 3.16, for... Did you hear begotten from some people? Those are the, just so you know, those neighbors have the King James Version or New King James Version. That's cool. That's okay. Begotten, all right. Sorry, I interrupted us. Only, maybe begotten son, that. There you go. We had some everlasting eternal, but we get it. Now, church, here's my question for us this morning. Why do we say that like with such a lack of passion? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Like, man, I know it's only 9.39 in the morning and you had to clear the snow before you got to church today, but how could we lack passion reading John 3, 16? Uh, a few weeks ago during a call to worship, I mentioned this old adage, a familiarity breeds contempt. And after I said that, I had uh, someone come up to me and say, man, that was awesome when you referenced that Taylor Swift lyric. I was like, oh yeah, that is in one of her songs. She didn't come up with that, but... That's great. All things for all people. But that quote is so often true. And really, if we were honest, it's often true about John 3.16, the gospel. Um, that, that familiarity breeds contempt, that, that us knowing something really well would lead us to a place of, of uh, devaluing it or, or not being attentive to it, or even this sermon this morning kind of checking out, because like, John 3.16, I, I got that. Let's, let's not do that today. Um, it, you may have seen him around or met him recently, but one of our newer staff members is a guy named Peter Mason. This is uh, him and his wife, Emily, and their daughter, Virginia. Uh, they joined our church back in September, and uh, it's been such a blessing having them here, a part of our church. Uh, hasn't it been, uh, Andrew Weston, your servant on Sunday? It's been good having him around? All right, you passed the test. Thank you. We love having him here, and I, I ask him because uh, Peter, he, he's back there actually right now in the booth, uh, producing is where he often is here at Spring Lake on Sundays. He works uh, he's, as our content and production coordinator, working alongside the worship and content teams, Emo and Lucas, in a bunch of ways. In fact, credit where credit's due, that bumper video that showed before I, I was up here, that was him. So we joked, we're like, Lucas is going to be getting credit for videos that Peter makes for like two years. Because we just don't know. We, let's, who's this guy behind the scenes? So there he is. If you haven't had a chance to meet him, I would encourage you to go introduce yourself to him. He's an awesome uh, uh, guy. Him and his family are wonderful. Uh, just a few fun facts about him. He's from Detroit, which I'm from Chicago, so there's a rivalry there. Um, but he went to seminary and pastored in England. Him and Emily lived there for about six years before moving back to the States 
and he was one of my college roommates. And his wife, Emily, was one of the first people I met at Moody Bible Institute. So at the very least, you can go to them and ask them, what was uh, Pastor Taylor like in college? Uh, Hopefully the answer is different for the better. But the refreshing thing about Peter and Emily is is this, how uh, often they express just their appreciation, their gratitude, their excitement to be a part of this church and to live in West Michigan. Like, it's just awesome to see. They're like, man, downtown Grand Haven is so magical. It's like paradise here. Man, this church is so great. The, the staff, the congregation, they're so uh, welcoming and wonderful. These are his words, not mine. He's like, the worship culture here is, is, is amazing. It's powerful that people actually worship. The preaching of the Bible, the vertical emphasis, the approach to discipleship. There is something special going on at this church. And amen to that. Um, and I wouldn't say that I've had contempt in my heart towards our church or living in West Michigan But to see the sparkle in their eyes has just been really refreshing and has brought to me just a a renewed sense of appreciation to be a part of this church and to live in this community. And here's my hope, that we would experience a very similar thing on a grander level in in regard to the gospel. That maybe like Peter, you're here today and you're you're a newcomer to the church, to Christianity. You're not super familiar with the gospel. And my hope would be that you would leave this place uh, with a sparkle in your eye, amazed by the beautiful truth of the gospel. And others of us, those of us who are familiar, we would call ourselves Christian, we've been in the church for a long time, that we would leave this place with a renewed amazement and appreciation of the gospel. That we wouldn't leave this place unamazed, unaffected by the gospel, a contemptible. So my question for us this morning is, which of those three people will you be today as we walk out of here in a few moments? I mentioned three people. Last week, Pastor Cal talked about three pictures of what it means to be saved in the first 15 verses of John 3. So today, here we are, we know it, in John 3, 16, we're going to see the process of salvation, God's plan of salvation, or for using imagery, picturesque language, the path of salvation. That's the big idea of today's sermon. If you're taking notes, it's this. The path of salvation is paved by God's movement towards us. So as we write that down, let's go ahead and see that in the text. Read with me in John 3, beginning in that well-known yet amazing verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here in those three verses, we see the path of salvation. And along that path, we see God's movement towards us. And I want to identify three truths in this text about God's movement towards us. The first is this, that God's motive in moving towards us was love. His motive in moving towards us is love. It says it right there in verse 16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world. Now, the passage we're looking at today, it comes after the conversation with Nicodemus we looked at last week. And some people debate, people who study the Bible, scholars. Some people think that 16 through 21, where we are today, that it's a continuation of the conversation. That Jesus has just given three pictures of salvation and Nicodemus is kind of confused. And so Jesus is like crystal clear, this is how to be saved. Uh, Other people would say that this is uh, John, the Apostle John, the Holy Spirit-inspired writer of this book, and it's his comment on the story, that us as readers, out of uh, seeing those three pictures, he wants to say crystal clear, this is the gospel, this is how to be saved. 
Uh, and you know, the, the thing is, is that uh, if I was honest, uh, I'm not sure exactly which one of those it is, but it doesn't really change what the meaning is or what, it, what it's saying here. Uh, and sometimes we do that as, as Christians. Uh, we can get caught up in things like, is, is this Jesus speaking to Nicodemus? Is this the Apostle John's comment on it? Like when it says, for God so loved the world, when it says world, is it talking about everyone or is it talking about a small, select, elect group of people? When, when, it, when, it says that, um, when it says there that there's this salvation, is that salvation that we have, is that a free will choice or is that God's sovereign doing in and through us? And don't hear me wrong, church, those things matter. We should search out those truths in the scriptures. But sometimes we get so caught up in those things that we miss the point. And here's the point that we see here, that God moved toward us out of love for you. If you're here right now, if you're in the sound of my voice, if you're sitting in this seat, I believe that God uh, sent his son. He moved towards us out of love for you. And I hope that you would recognize that today, that you would receive his love. It is available here today. Would we all find it? Would we recognize that and what his love led him to do, which is simply this. Verse 16, I've heard rephrased this way. This is how God loved the world. He gave his son. See, his motive was love, which led to the descending of his son from heaven to earth, from the right hand of the throne of heaven down to a manger as a baby because his plan is salvation. God's moving toward us. His motive was love. His plan was salvation to save humanity through the love-motivated sending of his son, Jesus that through Christ, we would all find what our souls long for, what we were created for, to know and love God, to experience life with God, what this passage calls eternal life, the life of the world to come. But when it says we can have eternal life, that's not just a future reality, like salvation is not just a ticket to heaven, but that word have has this present meaning to it, that it is a present experience available now, life with God, and increasingly so until it's completed and perfected in eternity. So the question becomes, uh, if God was motivated for love and, and his plan was salvation, why? Why would he love us? Why would he be compelled to send his son? Why was this plan necessary? And it's this, along the path of salvation, if that's God's movement towards us, where are we? Where is he moving towards? What's our location? What's our state? And it's this, our, con our condition is that we are condemned. Verse 17 says, he did not come to condemn. We already were condemned. So in love, he came to save us from condemnation. D.A. Carson, who's a, a well-known theologian, a, a professor of the New Testament, uh, he said this. He said, the love of God is not the consequence of our loveliness, but of the sublime truth that God is love, that in our natural state of condemned, God uh, was motivated and moved to love us and send his son, not because we deserved it, not because we were worthy of it, but despite of our condition, he moved towards us. And that's our state, condemned. So what does that mean? Maybe uh, you're not familiar with the meaning of that word. Uh, it could be a, kind of a churchy word sometimes. Condemnation means this, that our future apart from the movement of God is, is eternity in hell, separation from God. It is a life now and forever apart from what we were made for, from what our hearts long for, from the life, from the joy, from the happiness we are searching for. But it's not just a future reality, it is a present condition. And quickly, I just wanna outline, it's not a super fun list, but God's word describes what our present condition of condemnation means. And here's a few of the things that it says. 
So then in our condemned state, apart from the movement of God at birth, because the reality of the fallen sinful humanity, we are dead in sin. We are ignorant of the truth. We are blinded by Satan. We are alienated from God. We are disobedient to his will. We are hostile to his commands. We are unloving towards him. We are ungrateful for his mercy, hostile to God in our minds, children of wrath, slaves to sin, lovers of ourselves. And I know it's heavy, but this is our natural condition. This is where we are along the path of life at birth. And God moved towards us in love with a plan uh, to save us. So if we recognize that, this path that God moved towards us in love to save us, but we are here in the state of condemned, what we can see is that although God has moved towards us in our condemned states, so often there are still barriers that remain along the path from God from salvation, his movement towards us, we're still here and there's barriers there. And so we wanna recognize those barriers because sometimes in relationships, in communication, uh, there can be barriers to our relating to one another. One of the clearest examples I can think of in our time uh, is, is really, you know, AirPods, Bluetooth headphones, right? If you're at a, in public, at the grocery store, in, in a coffee shop, uh, so, so often we can have these in multitasking, doing multiple things to kind of block people out, but it inhibits our ability to relate with one another. Even this week, uh, I was in the office and I went over to Carolyn Muller's office and was just going to say something and I came to her office and I started talking to her for like two minutes and all of a sudden she like looked over and was like, ah, oh, how long have you been there? I was like, oh, you weren't listening? Like, which I don't know if that reflects more poorly on, on my communication skills or hers, but, um, and we need to recognize those barriers that we have on our path to salvation, our path to God, so that ultimately those can be removed. But first, let's see them uh, here in the text. Uh, the first barrier to salvation that I see is a wrong view of God. A wrong view of God. If John 3.16 says that God was motivated to love us, his plan was to save us, uh, that was his heart. But more often than not, we assign different motives to the way God's work. We come to different beliefs about his character. That God is not loving, but God is judgmental. That God uh, did not come to save us, but God came to send us to hell, to condemn us, to, to punish us. That God does not want to free us, but God wants to restrict our lives with rules and commands and uh, this is wrong, this is right. And this is a wrong view of God. And it's a barrier to the path of salvation. And often we arrive at these mistaken conclusions of God because we don't just have a wrong view of God, but we have a wrong view of ourselves. That rather than us understanding that our natural condition is condemned, that we are by nature sinners, fallen, all those descriptions I read just a few moments ago, uh, we sometimes believe that humanity is inherently good, that man is naturally good, that we don't need salvation, we are just in need of, of improvement, of, of progress, of advancement, that we think the real barrier is not our internal condition, but they are external things that are blocking our path to happiness, our path to the dreams that we have, the desires that we feel, the feelings that we have, those things are getting in the way and we need to remove them so that we can find uh, who we really are, who we were meant to be. And this is a delusion. And I don't say that to be insensitive because again, this is all of us at birth. 
Every single one of us has held this belief at one moment in time. And I say it's a delusion uh, not to push you away uh, and push you further along that path, but to warn you and hopefully help you avoid the pain of pursuing that path. Because I just assure you that you can chase out the things that you think will make you happy, the desires that you have, remove the things that you believe are restricting your joy. Uh, but, I, but I'm just going to tell you, you will find yourself along that path. And even though you've arrived at the place that you thought you wanted to be, you will be just as miserable as you are here, if not more. It's a delusion. It's not going anywhere good. It's not, it's not uh, the inability to become who we want to be that's the barrier, but it's those pursuits themselves that block us from coming to find who we really are, who God longs for us to be, to find the reason and purpose of life that we are looking for. We need to recognize uh, our, our, our state. We need to see those uh, barriers. Uh, my son, Shepard, he loves to read. And uh, actually, if you ask him what he wants to be when he grows up, he's like, I want to be a drummer at church. I want to be a runner for fun. And I want to be a, uh, a writer and illustrator for a job or a librarian. I'll settle for that. Like, that's great. That's great. That's awesome. So we love reading, and right now we're actually kind of moving from uh, picture books to like chapter books, which has been really fun. And every single night we read uh, our chapter book as well as our Bible, because uh, we always need God's word, amen? amen. Um, but uh, as I was kind of thinking back about a lot of books, you know, we've read so many books like time and time again. And one of the books that came to mind as I was thinking of this was this book, uh, the Sesame Street book, The Monster at the End of This Book, starring lovable, furry, old a Grover. And it starts out, and it's like, hey, we got bad news. There's a monster at the end of this book. And Grover's like, dude, don't turn the page. We don't want to see the monster at the end of this book. And Shepard's like, come on, we got to turn the page. And he just like, gets, Grover gets more and more ramped up. He's like, what are you doing, reader? Like, you're a terrible person. You're bringing us to the monster. This is not good. And then you turn, turn, you get to the end. And what is it? It's like, Grover, you're the monster, dude. That, that's you. You're the bad guy. You were afraid of the bad guy, but it's you. And, and really, that's, that's what I hope. I know, I know it's a bit silly, but would we come to the same realization? Like in this journey called life, in the story of your lives, we're kind of reading through it. And it's like, oh man, there, there are bad things that I'm trying to avoid. There's, there's monsters out there. There's bad things coming that I don't want to see. But as we turn to see, it's like, ah, the, the monster's me. The, the villain's me. I, I, I'm the bad guy. And, and really, this is the third uh, barrier and the overarching thing. Uh, and it's this, the darkness the darkness inside of us, that, that we're the monster, we're the villain, we're the bad guy. Read with me in verse 19 and 20 where we see this. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is the deep, the overarching, the hard issue of the barrier between us and God, us and salvation, us and the life we long for. It's the darkness. It's really a picture of our condition, our condemned condition that we described. A few things quickly about the nature of the darkness within us and what it means. First, in the darkness, I'm blind, right? I can't see God clearly. I've got a wrong view of God. I can't see who I am clearly. I've got a wrong view of myself. I can't see the world clearly. And in the darkness, at best, we are ignorantly separated from God and salvation. But more often than not, as it says there, we intentionally and actively choose the darkness because we're not just blind in the darkness, but more often than not, we love it. We love the darkness. That's what it says here. We love the darkness to do wicked things. 
the things that are outside of God's design, the things that he calls sin, the things that inhibit my ability to receive the love of God, uh, the barriers themselves. I, I love the barrier. I love the darkness. And I think if all of us took just a few moments and thought about the last week, we could think of many examples around us, in the world, on our social feed, at our workplace, in our household, in our extended family, um, in, our, in our friend groups, where we could see a love of the darkness, but not just out there, also in, our, in ourselves. If we took a moment to think about, man, like actually in, I, I've had hurtful, harmful things that I've thought, that I've even said, that I've, that I've done, and I recognize this, this, my heart is prone to wander and to love the darkness. Maybe, though, you're in the room and you're aware of your darkness. You're aware of the fact that you see the blindness and in your inability to see, or you see the fact that you love it, but you, you really don't want to uh, love it. Verse 20 says uh, that, that, that we, we are hiding, that we may feel this like, I see the darkness, I see that I love it, but, but I just, I'm hiding in the darkness. It says, you do not come to the light lest your work should be exposed. Like, I know the place where I'm at in this journey called life isn't working, but I can't be honest and real about the fact that this is who I really am, that this is where my heart is really at. Like, I don't want people, I don't want to be exposed. I'm afraid of people finding out who I really am, the things that I really think and do. Like, I'm ashamed of it. I hate it. And I'm just avoiding the moment when it's revealed to the light. And church, I would ask you do, you, do you recognize these barriers in your heart? Do you see the things that stand in the way of you and God, of, of you and, and life with God, of you and salvation, of joy? And maybe, maybe you can recognize that, but even as you see it, as you want to uh, avoid it and, and, and move away from it, you find that you can't. You, you just feel like, I've tried, I've tried to not do it, I've tried to stop, I've tried to remove it, but I just can't. Here's the good news. God has removed every barrier blocking our path to him. Amen? This is the story of history. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light. He made everything. He made us, he made man, and he said, this is good. But turn just a page to Genesis 3, where man chooses his own path away from God, says, I wanna be God, and chooses the darkness, and now there's that barrier, that separation. And all throughout the rest of the story in the Old Testament, we see God's movement towards man, God's removal of the barriers that stand between them, but that man time and time again chooses the darkness until, until one moment when God moved towards us as we see here in John 3 in the sending of his son, Jesus, to once and for all make a way that the barrier would be removed and that the path of God would be forever cleared and paved for us. Ephesians 2 says it this way. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. He has broken the barrier, it says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, he moved towards us and preached peace to us who were far off 
and to those who were near, but the barrier was still there. For through him, through Christ, we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Do you hear that? Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't. And he also died the death that we were meant to die as a substitute for us, for for the punishment of our sins. And the scripture says, I think of the snow that we see outside today. What a beautiful picture that uh, by his blood, it says we are washed white as snow. And not only in his death are we covered, are we forgiven, but he rose again on the third day, defeating sin and death. Like, did, did you hear it in the song earlier? And do you see it in the scriptures? It says, the veil was torn in two. Literally, the dividing wall was removed. The stone was rolled away. And he is alive. And by faith in him, we can be saved. We can have access to God. That's the good news, isn't it? God has removed every barrier blocking our path to him. So now, we see it. God's movement towards us, his motive was love, his plan, salvation. But we're in this uh, condemned state And there's these barriers that remain. And by the work of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, the barrier is removed. And so now the choice is ours uh, today. Will we, as we leave this place in just a few moments, build back up the barrier and go back our path, our way to the darkness? Or because God has moved towards us in love to save us from our condemnation and he's removed every barrier, instead, will we move towards God? And all of us has that choice today. Because God has moved towards us, he's removed the barriers because the path is paved and cleared. We have an opportunity to respond. Whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, those of you who are, uh, I would say you're believers, don't don't check out because this is not just for those who are unsaved. This is for all of us to move towards God. Three things we see in verse 21, read with me. It says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. First step, first, first uh, our movement towards God because he's paved and cleared the path to step towards him in faith. Take the step towards him in faith. And maybe as you write that down and hear that, you're like, yeah, it's a pretty Christian thing to say. Like, yeah, have faith. Okay, but like, what does that actually mean? And I want us to understand really clearly and practically what this means for us. Because in one sense, salvation is really simple. Faith is really simple. Romans 10, 9 says it this way. If you confess with your mouth and believe uh, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we see that in John 3, all throughout the book of John. Whoever believes will be saved. Whoever believes will have eternal life. Whoever believes will not be condemned. Just believe. Is that all I need to do? Yes, that's it. All you need to do is have faith in the work of Jesus and follow after him. But what what does that mean? Again, how do I have faith? How does that play out? Because that word faith here, that's used many times in the book of John. Uh, One Bible dictionary uh, defined it this way I read. Uh, To believe, we got that. Put one's faith in. Trust, here it is, with an implication that actions based on that trust may follow. John 3, 21, we read it, it says, the one who does what is true is the one who comes to the light. That we cannot disjoint a faith and the way that it leads into the way that we live, actions. If you've been at Harvest for any number of years, you've probably heard this definition of faith that we use uh, often. It says, faith is believing in the word of God and acting on it no matter how I feel because God promises a good result. Faith 
is, is Romans 10, as it says, it's, it is confessing with our mouth, believing in our heart, but it is a saying that Jesus is Lord and believing in him as, in, as Savior in a way that will then affect the way that we uh, live. Our uh, discipleship class here at Harvest on the End Times began last week. Is anyone in that class? A few people? Okay, sorry if you missed the chance to sign up. Uh, deadline's cut off. It started. They, they don't really have room because there are actually 500 people who are in this room on Tuesday night who are uh, just excited and hungry and want to learn from God's word about the second coming of Christ, about his return. And Pastor Dave, who's, who's teaching that and does a fantastic job, I, I love his heart because what he said in his first lesson was something to the extent of this, that at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what we believe about the return of Christ if it doesn't affect the way that we live. And that's true of, of all theology, that sometimes we as Christians, again, we can do this. We can have such strong opinions about beliefs, about uh, dogma, about theology, about doctrine. But we can believe those things and it doesn't really affect the way that we live. And that's, that's not a biblical sense of, of faith. That f- stepping towards God of faith means a belief that leads to action. That's what faith is. And as I think of this idea of faith and how often we say that we believe something, but practically our, our lives don't match up. I think of uh, a family trip. We took the summer to Six Flags, Great America. Uh, we went in the Chicago area. That's where our family's at. So we were there. We went to Six Flags. And here are uh, uh, three statements that are true and are not mutually exclusive. One, I love roller coasters. They're awesome. They're thrilling. Number two, I am deathly afraid of roller coasters. I know, it doesn't make sense. How do those things go together? And third, do the switch. I'm not, I'm not a small human being. Um, so we go to Six Flags Great America, and the first ride Sam and I go on is called Goliath. It's the tallest, steepest, fastest wooden roller coaster in the world. And we hit this big drop on the ride. Here's a picture of it. 180 feet at an 85-degree angle, basically uh, straight down. And... You think that I yell in worship? Like, the sound that was coming out of my mouth in that moment was like the most terrifying thing that's ever been heard in the history of the world. Like, I was the whole time down, just pure terror. I was holding onto the seat so hard that I ripped off a part of the seat. We rolled back into, like, the station at the end, and everyone's looking around like, what was that? Who was making that sound? Like the eight-year-old kid in front of me was traumatized, not by the ride, but by the sound from my voice. So the next ride we went on was called X-Flight. Here's a picture of that one. We stood in line. It was our turn. I sat in the contraption where, like, your legs were dangling. And it's like, again, I'm a bigger guy. And so I'm like, I don't know. The seat's pretty small. Like, and so uh, we're about to ready to go. The worker comes over to make sure it's secure. It's like a 14-year-old kid. I'm like, is this really safe? Is this secure? Just stares at me. Yeah, you're good, man. <laughs> They're about to take off, and I'm like, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not doing this ride. We're out of here. So Sam rode X-Flight by herself. <laughs> I believe roller coasters are safe, but I don't always act upon that belief. Why do I tell this wildly embarrassing story? Is this your faith, church? Do you say that you believe in the gospel, you believe in Jesus, you believe in scripture, but you don't live like you really believe it? Because that is a biblical idea of faith. 
Church, listen here. Does your faith in the gospel tangibly shape the choices you make, the habits you form, the things that you do? Like God's word says this is a sin. So because I believe the Bible, I will not do it. God's word says I I ought to do this. I ought to love. I ought to serve. So I will do it. Step towards him in faith. Hear this clearly. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by what you've done. You are saved by faith in the work of Jesus alone. But a biblical concept of faith is a belief that leads to action. And if we want to live with a faith that shows in the way that we live, then it demands us to do uh, the second thing, to step into the light. That's our movement towards God. Because he's cleared the way, because he's removed the barrier, because he's moved towards us to save us in love, we step into the light. Verse 21 says that. It says, whoever does what is true, whoever has faith comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen. And I was kind of thinking about that, how, how like the light that Jesus is described as, his word is described as, how it comes, and it kind of exposes the ugliness in us. And it made me think of, uh, have you ever been to like a really nice restaurant, a steakhouse, where it's like the lights are dim, and it's vibey and romantic? But have you ever been to that same place in the daytime? Not great. Doesn't look so fancy. Doesn't look very clean. Feels like there's some things that maybe don't belong in there. And that's, that's the light of God on us. It's like, ah, man, step into the light. Let God expose the darkness in you and the ugliness. And it's like, that doesn't belong here. That rather than hiding in the darkness, we let God shine his light on our darkness to reveal what needs to change, what needs to go, what doesn't belong. This, we call this process repentance. God exposes our sin, our, our shame, and we change the directions of our life. We leave the darkness and follow into his light. That rather than loving the darkness, as followers of Jesus, we love the light. We live with love, selflessness, righteousness. And I just want to throw on the screen quick uh, a bunch of scriptures that use light imagery in the Bible. If you're looking for a way to kind of dive deeper in in your application and response to the sermon, uh, maybe you want to dig into some of these passages. I wish I could go into a bunch of them. I don't really have time. But ultimately, light imagery in the Bible is largely this light that both exposes the negative, but then also the positive. The light comes to show the way, to shine through us. Psalm 119, 105 says it this way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Step into the light so that ultimately our last step towards God, we step in faith, step in the light, and we follow his lead. Verse 21 says it there at the end. The one who steps in the light and does what is true, it says his work has been carried out by God. Do we hear that? Our salvation, the good fruit in us, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the good work, the positivity, the transformation, the growth, the repentance, all of it is God's doing in and through us. He's paved the way. He moved towards us. He removed the barrier. He's done it all. So we follow his lead. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says it this way. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God moved towards you first. God did the work of removing the barriers that stood between you and him, life with God, salvation, All we need to do is respond to his movement towards us. 
with movement towards him. Step in faith, a belief that leads to action. Step into the light, follow his lead. So I asked at the beginning of this sermon, as we leave this place, uh, which of the three people do we want to be? A newcomer who's amazed by the gospel, the familiar who's renewed in their amazement for the gospel, or the one who would leave unaffected? I want to encourage us to have an opportunity to respond. Uh, and as we do that, we're going to sing in just a moment, but don't, don't check out here because um, there's an opportunity for everyone to respond. Now, there, have you ever heard of something called a come to Jesus moment? I learned last night from uh, our soul care pastor, Brian Smoots, his wife, Jenny. She's like, that means something not so great in the South. Like, that means like you're about to have a really hard conversation. That's kind of what I'm talking about, I guess, right? Step into the light. But come to Jesus, this term really started with its popularity in the 19th century during the revivals that were taking place. There were these big gatherings where a ton of people were putting their faith in the gospel. And so there were invitations, come to Jesus moments. Even a lot of times this is associated with altar calls. And I'll tell you in this moment so you know, there's not going to be an altar call right now. There's not going to be an opportunity for you to physically respond right away. But that doesn't mean that we can't respond and have a come to Jesus moment in the way that we need and uh, as I look over back in my life, I've had many moments like this that were formative and important. When I first came to the faith and prayed the sinner's prayer, many moments where I, once again, the gospel was clearly presented. There was an opportunity to respond. And again, God moved to us. He removed the barriers. And so move towards him in faith, step into the light, follow after him. And we need to do that over and over again. We can never have too many come to Jesus moments. And so this is an opportunity for you to do that in the way that you need to. As I think about those moments, I think of one moment in particular that was really meaningful in my life. Uh, a year into uh, my, my marriage, I found myself, I was, I was hiding in the darkness. I, I stepped back into the darkness, built up the barrier, but by God's great, his grace, his movement towards me, he removed the barriers and, and gave me the opportunity to step into the light and repent of my sin. And as a result of that, I found myself plugged into soul care and in soul care, doing the work of digging deep into the, the, the hard issues that were there, the false beliefs about God and myself, about the gospel itself. And I can remember one moment where my soul care a counselor said to me, he said, you're the prodigal son. And what I want you to do is I want you to go through the story and to put yourself in his position to read ultimately his prayer of repentance to God from your heart. So I, I would invite us for this to be really our, our prayer, your come to Jesus moment, not just the prodigal sons, not just mine, but yours. Luke 15, uh, verse 20, it says this, and the prodigal son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Do you see it there? God's movement towards him. God removing the barriers with his love and his plan of salvation. And it says, and the son said to him, the son stepped in the light. He said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm in the darkness. I'm ashamed. This is the reality of who I am. And what does it say? But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my child was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is not just a son's story many, many years ago that Jesus told. This is my story. And my hope is that it wouldn't just be my story, but it would be uh, yours. 
that the gospel is clear here and there's an opportunity for you to respond, to come to Jesus, to step in faith, to step into the light, to follow his lead, to stake your ground in the truth of the gospel in a way that your life really reflects it. Let him do that work in you. He wants to do it right now. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we come before you now. We come before you now in response to the fact that you came to us and we recognize your movement toward us, your love for us, your desire to save us despite our brokenness, our darkness, our sin, our condemnation. Thank you, Lord. And in response to your movement towards us and the work of Jesus, your removing of the barriers, would we now respond by stepping forward in faith, by stepping into the light, by following your lead in every area of our life, whatever that means. God, do that work within us as you promised to do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.